Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review, a weekly podcast on international politics. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times, and every week I'll be talking to guests about topical issues. Normally, I gather the material on my travels and the issues vary, but for the moment, I'm under lockdown in London, and there seems to be only one topic, the impact of the coronavirus. My guest this week is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Anne Applebaum, who's currently in Poland. I was particularly interested to speak to Anne because she's been writing and thinking about an issue that I'm also very preoccupied by, which is the rise of populist authoritarianism around the world, and whether the coronavirus epidemic is going to speed up that trend. There are plenty of reasons for thinking that it might. Even in established Western democracies like Italy, Britain, America, fear of the pandemic means that people have been willing to accept restrictions on their daily lives that would normally be unthinkable when you can leave your house, when you can go to work, whether you can even sunbathe in the park. It's assumed all those changes will be temporary. That's certainly my assumption sitting here in London. But might there be some countries or leaders who seek a more permanent shift towards authoritarianism? There have been examples in history where an atmosphere of emergency and panic allowed dictators to seize emergency powers and then never give them back. And there are already some examples of autocratic governments who seem to be using COVID-19 to at least tighten their grip on power. Both Egypt and China have expelled foreign reporters because they were unhappy with critical coverage of how they'd been handling the pandemic. Now, of course, China's never been a democracy in the first place. But Chinese liberals, and there are plenty of those, are worried that the government has used the pandemic to increase, legitimise and perfect surveillance of the population, in particular by using data from smartphones. On the other hand, all the evidence doesn't point in one way. In Russia, President Putin was gearing up for a referendum to approve changes to the constitution that would essentially have allowed him to rule for life. But that vote's had to be delayed, and Putin himself has slightly disappeared from public view as he allows other officials to take the blame for unpopular lockdown measures. One country that's particularly interesting is Hungary. It's nominally a democracy, it's a member of the European Union, but in recent years, other members of the EU have become increasingly alarmed by actions taken by the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban. Now, Orban, when he started his career as a student leader, was an advocate of democracy. But in recent years, he's become an advocate of what he now calls illiberal democracy. Is increasingly autocratic. And although Hungary is a member of the European Union and nominally a democracy, Orban's clearly been cracking down on the independence of the courts, the independence of the media, establishing something of a cult of personality within Hungary. Now, with the coronavirus crisis, he's made what may be a decisive move away from democracy and towards autocracy. Under cover of the coronavirus, the Hungarian parliament has given Orbán the power to rule by decree. Anne Ampelbaum, who's written extensively about Central and Eastern Europe and about authoritarianism, is the perfect person to discuss all this. So I started by asking her what she makes of what's happening in Hungary. In Hungary, there's a very dramatic situation. It is a country with a very, very weak healthcare system, like a lot of smaller Central European 
countries. Um, lots of doctors have left in recent years. There's been a lot of underfunding of the healthcare system, sometimes in dramatic ways. Money has gone instead to the pet projects of the sort of authoritarian-leaning government. And now the government has to explain to Hungarians what's going wrong. And so the Hungarian parliament has passed a law that says a number of things, but the two central things are that all existing laws and arrangements can be overridden by the prime minister. In other words, he can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to pay attention to existing or future laws or anything that the parliament says. And the other part of the law that has people worried is a fine or prison sentence for journalists or others who are accused of somehow disrupting the government's health plans. So there's an illusion that it's about spreading false information, but it seems to be a little bit different than that, kind of disrupting the carrying out of the battle against the pandemic. And of course, that can mean anything. I mean, if you criticize the government, if you say, I don't know, there aren't enough face masks, maybe that counts as disrupting the government's plans. And so there's a huge avenue both for simply just intimidation of people, of healthcare workers and also of journalists has been opened, plus this enormous loophole that allows the government to essentially do anything without having to consult or have any public argument about it at all. And already the Hungarian government has used this power. For example, in Hungary, there is some public funding of opposition parties, and they have unilaterally cut that funding. Of course, the ruling party, it doesn't matter to them because they have an almost total monopoly over the media and they have all kinds of access to state funding in other ways. But this cut of funding to opposition political parties clearly is part of the game. And so, in other words, the Hungarian prime minister has weaponized this moment of insecurity to take more power for himself and use it to try and manipulate the situation. And do you think that this potentially has a wider significance? Because I suppose the counter argument would be, well, you know, Hungary is quite a small country and it may just be an isolated incident. Why does Hungary matter? I mean, in the wider scheme of things, maybe it doesn't. You're right, it's a small country. The difficulty is that Orban does have a surprising number of Western admirers, some of whom are quite high status and influential in their own country. I was at a conference in Rome in February where he was the star attraction at a meeting of what was called National Conservatives. And there were people there from all over Europe. Marine Le Pen's niece, Marianne Marichal, was there. There were people from Vox in Spain. There was a Dutch far-right leader. There were Americans. There were Brits. There were Israelis. There were lots of people there who were admirers of Orban and who'd come to hear him. And his technique of governing, which is essentially authoritarian, it's to crush and dismiss and fight against opposition as if the opposition were traitors and not loyal. In other words, to use authoritarian tactics, even within a democratic system, is one that is really widely admired by a lot of sitting politicians in Western countries. And they will certainly be watching what he's doing now and learning from it. Does the Orban cult, if one can call it that, I mean, it seems to me it kind of goes back to the migration crisis of 2015, when he famously built the wall to keep refugees out, was regarded as the kind of counterfigure to Angela Merkel. And I think ever since then, a lot of the nationalist right have seen him as their guy. Yeah, no, no. And he's sought out that role. And this is remember that Hungary had no migration crisis of its own. Nobody was trying to get to Hungary in order to stay there. There were at one point some people trying to get across Hungary to Germany. But he nevertheless manipulated and used the crisis as a way of justifying himself, of legitimizing his misuse of democratic means, and also as a way of 
making an argument. You know, from him, it's very, very important to kind of delegitimize the European Union because the European Union stands for rule of law. It stands for neutral justice and all those things that he's seeking to undermine inside his own country. And so he needs to send a message constantly to his countrymen that the EU is bad, the EU is evil. We need to keep out the EU because the EU is a challenge to his means of ruling Hungary. And he's found a lot of admirers around Europe for exactly that. And yet, ironically, of course, Hungary received a lot of money from the EU, although it's also, as you alluded to earlier, I guess it suffered in the sense that some of its most skilled people have moved out of the country, although that may be partly because of Mr. Orban himself. But talking about the EU, I mean, as you say, Orban has demonised the European Union. How has the European Union responded? I mean, there has been talk that now he's passed these measures, the EU has to respond, but there doesn't seem much evidence they're going to do anything. Well, this isn't really the moment when people are thinking about Viktor Orban and Hungary. I mean, to be fair to the EU, you know, it's just not the time for it and people are preoccupied with other things. It could be that we see, certainly in the question of EU budgets and other measures that are taken down the road, we could see changes in how people deal with Hungary. More generally, the EU is in a strange position right now because, you know, the EU is not responsible, has never been given responsibility for public health. It doesn't have any say over it. It doesn't have any influence over it. It's never been part of what the EU does. It's one of those things that was always delegated to countries. And so demanding from the EU that it somehow solve this particular crisis has put it in a difficult position. I mean, having said that, I think the EU will be involved down the road in coming up with financing for countries afflicted by the crisis. And there is already beginning to be talk about joint purchasing of equipment and commissioning of equipment and so on. So that you may begin to see an EU role further on. But, you know, those are the things that the EU is thinking about right now and not what Orban is doing in Budapest. But one of the reasons that when this issue has come up in the past, and Orban, as we were saying, has been a controversial figure for a while, one of the things that's protected him is that the Polish government is also extremely wary of being criticised for any latent authoritarianism and so on. Now, you're sitting in Poland. How is the political debate, particularly over these kind of related issues of dealing with the coronavirus, but also authoritarianism, how is that panning out in Poland? In some ways, there are some similar parallels. I mean, this is also a country with a very weak healthcare system. And it's also a place where a lot of big gestures have been used to fight the virus rather than actually effective policies. For example, two weeks ago, the Polish government very abruptly shut the border. Literally all planes, all trains, all buses not allowed to come in over the border. And this created all kinds of chaos. It left people stranded all over the place. It left huge queues of cars and trucks and some just people trying to get across the country, go home to Ukraine or to the Baltic states. In Germany, you know, it created personal chaos for my family. I had to get one of my sons home very, very fast. From the U.S., we had him fly to Berlin where he had to get off the plane, get onto a train, go to the border, and then literally walk across the border, you know, as if it was a Cold War spy movie because there was no way to get into the country. And then my husband picked him up on the other side. And this, as I said, this kind of action, did it really help stop the virus? No, the virus was already here. Did it help the healthcare system? No, nothing has been done for them. But it was a very popular gesture. And so you have a similar phenomenon here where there's some very, very harsh public gestures being made without real change. The conversation in Poland is also a little bit strange and different from almost everywhere else right now in Europe because we have a presidential election, which is supposed to take place in a month on May the 10th. And right now, the only candidate who is able to campaign is the sitting president because he can be featured constantly on television and so on. 
And all the other campaigns have been forced to stop all their activity. They can't hold rallies. They can't travel anything. You know, that's one set of issues. The second issue is how are they going to conduct an election? Are people going to want to work in voting booths or voter registration sites? Will people physically want to go somewhere and vote at this particular time? And particularly given that the, the virus is supposed to climax in Poland probably around that time? And the answer is no. And so here you have the phenomenon of the political opposition. And really, I think actually it's now up to 90 percent, between 80 and 90 percent of polls saying they don't want the election to be held in five weeks or four weeks. They want it to be delayed. And then the government is insisting that the election somehow must be held precisely because it's aware that if it's postponed to the fall, to the autumn, by then you will have had the economic crisis. By then the virus may have spiraled out of control. By then they think the election might be unwinnable. And so you have, you know, a real argument here right now about what is the prudent thing to do? What is the democratic thing to do? And you have a government insisting there must be somehow an election, even if it's a deeply unfair election. And the opposition saying, no, it must be delayed until September. This question, though, of the postponement of votes and how you carry out votes in these conditions is becoming a global one. And I guess it plays out differently according to different circumstances. So let's just finish by talking about Russia and then about the United States. You know, in Russia, it's a country you've written about throughout your life. Putin was poised to essentially become ruler for life by this referendum that he was planning to hold to change the constitution. And now they've had to delay the vote. Do you assume that's just a temporary blow for him? I think in his case, it's a temporary blow. I mean, you know, Putin has followed the pattern of a lot of other autocrats, actually, by initially denying the virus or downplaying it. And by the way, there's a lot of evidence of bad statistics in Russia. There was an excellent report done by a website called Coda Story um, a couple of weeks ago in which they interviewed Russian doctors and hospitals who said, yeah, we have tons of people who are dying of respiratory illness and we're just not calling it the coronavirus. We're just calling it pneumonia. And so there's evidence that it's been spreading in Russia at a much faster pace and has been acknowledged and that the government is trying to keep down the numbers either to prevent panic and also to prevent Putin's unpopularity. So it's clear that they will also, one way or another, seek to use the occasion, you know, for crackdowns, for more control, possibly for more surveillance than they had in the past. You know, I imagine there is a possibility that this could, in the longer term, depending on how it goes, it could undermine Putin. Putin's popularity, even in the sometimes manipulated, officially published polls, has been falling recently. And it could be that this is not a good time to have a big referendum, essentially, that would allow him to stay in power for the rest of his life. And it could be that this becomes, a, you know, yet another blow to his legitimacy. But we could also see the opposite happen, namely that he uses this, as so many others are seeking to do, to establish more control in the country. Which brings us finally to the question of the United States, which you spend a lot of time in, uh, and I know you follow very closely. Do you worry, as many on the Democratic side have, that even President Trump might try to delay the presidential election? Well, the U.S. is in a very, you know, as I understand it, and people are having this argument about it right now, while there could be a change in the date of the election, the date of the inauguration cannot be changed. It's part of the Constitution. And so come next January 20th, there has to be a president chosen who will be inaugurated. And so the question of how the election will happen is already under hot debate. I have no doubt that both the president and the Republican Party will seek to find a way to restrict the ability of people to vote, particularly, I can imagine, in big cities, which are Democratic strongholds. 
I can imagine all kinds of arguments that are going to be beginning to unfold about postal voting and whether postal voting can be done fairly. You know, prepare over the summer for a series of major arguments of an extraordinarily bitter kind of how it's going to be possible to conduct an American. Remember, it's not just a presidential campaign. It's also the House of Representatives and part of the Senate all over the country. The Democrats have already said that they will postpone and there's some thought that they might even cancel their convention. Other candidates are not going to be able to campaign in the way that we've come to consider normal. And the question of how to have a legitimate election under these circumstances is, as I said, it's early days. It's, you know, we've got more time than Poland does. But it will become, I predict by the summer, a really major political battle. Okay, well, I guess it's it's one we'll watch. So we'll return to that issue uh, in the coming months. And also, Anne, just the last thing, I gather you've got a book coming out in the summer around these themes. Yes, the book is called Twilight of Democracy, and it's a book about the appeal of authoritarian ideologies in democracies. And I'm sorry to say that it's largely based on my experiences with people I've known or have previously been friends with in Eastern Europe and Western Europe and the United States. And it's an attempt to understand the thinking of the anti-liberal and anti-pluralist movements in all of our countries. Well, OK, well, look forward to talking to you about that when it's published. But for now, thanks very much, Anne Applebaum. Thanks, Gideon. That was Anne Applebaum in Poland ending this week's edition. I hope you'll be able to join me again next week. And if you can spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the podcast and how it can improve if such a thing is possible. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash survey. 